Thank you, Gerald, Josie, and Brett. What a blessing. Amazing grace. It is amazing. It is amazing, folks. Well, I tell you to turn to your Bibles, and, and you can, but it'll be a little while before we get to Psalm chapter 88, but that's where we will eventually end up. Um, as the holidays now are full swing, we're going to take a short break from our study through Luke, and uh, of course, the Christmas season is one of joy, it's one of celebration, it's a time of singing. Members of our congregation demonstrated this uh, just this past week, this past Wednesday, going door-to-door caroling. And we're going to do the same again this next week. We're going to go to Life Center, Life Care Center, and uh, Carol, that's a nursing and rehab facility, again bringing song. Um, so my topical message today will underscore the worship that God enjoys and the benefit man receives through Christian singing. Through Christian singing. That can include songs and hymns, psalms we sing together, music we listen to at home. As God is glorified, and even as we go out Christmas caroling together and singing together. Uh, And I hope to amplify for you uh, God's emphasis and the prominence of song in Scripture. Singing throughout uh, Scripture reveals about a particular man. I want to reveal that to you today as a particular man. He's a real he-man. No doubt about it. In fact, his name's even spelled He-Man, H-E-M-A-N, appropriately pronounced in the Hebrew, Haman, Haman, of whom we learn the most about in the Chronicles to the Kings, as we read earlier. And he's an obscure character. He's from the Old Testament, seldom mentioned, and one that likely few of us have heard of. Uh, But that doesn't suggest that his legacy is feeble. It's not. It's not at all. In fact, we're going to discover that Haman's legacy lasts for generations, multiple generations, and he was a genuine he-man, no doubt about it. And, but he was never known as a fierce warrior. He was surely not a king. He, he didn't rule over anyone, as far as we can tell, uh, nor was he rich or did he own a whole lot of land. In fact, he was a Levite. He didn't own land. But his influence, nonetheless, was felt throughout Israel for centuries. And he still influences us in the church today. What did Haman do? Or Haman, excuse me. What did Haman do? He sang. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33, identifies him as Haman the singer. He's the singer. He was one of the Kohathites. They were descendants from Kohath, the second son of Levi. So he was a Levite. uh, And that alerts us that all the men of his family were to assist the priests in the temple, the sons of Aaron, in the ministry of the worship at the tabernacle in Jerusalem and later on, of course, in Solomon's temple as well. In fact, Scripture first introduces us to the activities of Haman in that very context. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And as I said earlier, that is when King David is moving the ark back to Jerusalem, back from the house of Obed-Edom, where it was temporarily stored, uh, before returning to be housed in a large portable tent. You know what that was called? The tabernacle. Um, referred to as the tabernacle a generation before the temple was built by Solomon 
in Jerusalem. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 14 we read, So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. So the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives the singers, with instruments of musics and harps and lyres and loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So Levites, the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, the first one mentioned there. And thereafter we, we read that many of Haman's relatives were appointed also, that, and they were referred to um, as the singers. They were the singers, First Chronicles 15, verse 19. These were also instrumentalists. They sang and they played instruments. They also formed an all-male choir. Must have been a sight there at the tabernacle. And you probably remember hearing about that scene. The ark is brought into Jerusalem. King David went before it, leaping and dancing, as we remember, to the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, harps and lyres, all kinds of musical instruments. And the Levites placed the Ark of the Covenant in the tent as David offered a long prayer of dedication. A dedication and thanksgiving to God in appreciation that the Ark had been retrieved from the Philistines. Folks, that's, that's a really big deal in ancient Israel, under the Old Covenant. The ark represented the presence of God among his people, dwelling with Israel in the land. Under the law, it was impossible to worship uh, the Lord appropriately, according to the word of the Lord, unless there was the presence of the ark. So, So this became a huge celebration as the ark came back into Jerusalem to be placed back into the tabernacle. And it's after David's prayer of dedication, his prayer of thanksgiving, that the priests resumed then the burnt offerings as they were uh, told to do at the altar according to the law. And it says that they did all that was according as it was written in the law of the Lord. First Chronicles chapter 16. And the, and the scene, it's a scene of holy worship. Holy worship unto God. And, and, and we're told that the priests then were asking the men of strong repute. Men who had good reputations to offer prayers of thanksgiving before the people of Israel so that all could hear. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, it tells us that with them were Haman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. And with them were Haman and Jeduthun with trumpets and cymbals for those who should sound aloud and with instruments for, what? The songs of God. And the sons of Jeduthun for the gate. Then all the people departed each to his house and David returned to bless his own household as well. So Haman, he wasn't only one of the guys chosen to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. He he was also tasked with playing the instruments and leading the singing of songs. Songs to God. He was known as a man with a passion for fervent worship. 
for skill with instruments, worship through prayer, music, and song. And he was memorialized in Scripture with this title, Haman the Singer. Haman the Singer. And I was pondering what to do as a topical message for this week. During this Christmas season, as we prepare to to focus our hearts upon the birth of a Savior... And I began reflecting on the many traditions that we do around Christmas that inspire not only Christians, but even our unbelieving neighbors around us. And this Sunday falls between our previous Wednesday where we went out caroling, and now next Wednesday again we're going out to the Life Care Center to carol again, memorializing the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. All through singing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And and I remembered how Israel sang and celebrated when the presence of God returned to His people in Israel. When the presence of God became uh, among men in, in symbolically through the ark. And I was reading that passage and I saw one of those men, one of those men tasked with leading The people of God in worship and song was called Haman the Singer. I love that. Of all things to be called, Haman the Singer. And I began to marvel at the the significance of that scene. God being worshipped through music and instruments, some of them loud instruments, voices rising through verses of song. And I asked myself, why does God love this? Why does he love hearing the, verses, uh, the voices sing? Is it because our voices are that great? Not for most of us. Not typically. Is it because God is seeking some kind of superior experience? Personal satisfaction. Unlikely. God dwelt uh, in perfect satisfaction since eternity passed, long before human voices ever came on the scene. So it's not that that God needs to hear us sing, as Paul assures us in Acts chapter 17, where we're reminded that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So why the singing? Why the singing? And though I'm the first to admit that music and singing, it's not my strong suit. If uh, If I were, in fact, though, to pursue another degree which I'm not, and I won't. My greatest interest now would be to pursue a higher degree of understanding and appreciation for sacred worship. Sacred worship. Um, I won't do that. I simply recognize I don't have the foundational skills uh, in place necessary to thrive in that context that Haman thrived in. But at the same time, I do acknowledge that I'm fastest growing to admire now. This point in my life, I'm fastest growing to admire the men 
who devoted their lives to leading the body of Christ. In sacred worship through prayer and through instruments and through song. And I'm finally beginning to realize, folks, they're the real he-men in the ministry. They're the ones who skillfully weave instruments and song and doctrine and truth and God's word into sacred worship. And, and I've long been inspired by the worship pastor at our previous church. Uh, that was in Denton, Texas. His name was Kendall Lucas. A few of you might have heard me reference him uh, from time to time and describe Kendall. He's a real maestro. Just amazing. Just amazing. And, and when Rita and I first met him, you know, I naively thought that you know, he's just really good at picking out songs on Sunday. Man, that guy's really good at picking out songs on Sunday. Well, the senior pastor, I figured, did all the heavy, heavy lifting. And it wasn't until after I got to see Kendall working in his study diligently and, and through an increased understanding of Scripture and the church that I began to form a, a greater appreciation for how essential that ministry of music is. Because a worship pastor, he doesn't just pick, you up, pick out a few good tunes. He studies the tunes. He teaches the tunes. He grooms others to use their own giftedness through instruments and through voices and through song to glorify God. And the worship pastor leads the people of God into a more intimate relationship with God our Savior. This was the function of the Levitical singers, like Haman. As the priests offered up the sacrifices at the temple, through song the singers would lead Israel into a spiritual understanding of what was accomplished through those sacrifices. Essentially, think of it this way, what is the point of seeing an animal killed if you don't have any idea why that animal is being killed. It's similar with Christ and the cross. You know, scores of people have seen movies about the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, the Passion, it was a riveting movie. It was riveting, yeah. What they did to him. But what is the point if someone doesn't eventually explain to you why he died? Why God's Son was killed. And to clarify how Jesus endured the, the full weight of God's wrath for sins so that we can be set free from the penalty of our sins and enjoy a restored fellowship with God through Him, through trusting in Him, that is the Gospel. For Scripture is clear, for this reason Christ came, to save His people from their sins. That's why He came. That's Christmas. And, and it wasn't enough for Israel to just see the sacrifice die. They needed to be taught why that substitutional sacrifice needed to die. And surely that was achieved through preaching and teaching and through the public reading of Scripture. But we quickly forget teaching is also the primary purpose of music. The Psalter, or the Book of Psalms, functioned as Israel's hymnal. Psalms are the Word of God written in poetic form. 
Many were sung to music to stimulate and teach Israel and us about God and about man. Listen to just a few verses from Psalm 2. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Hebrew, that sounds more like a poem. Not as much um, in English. But, but did you notice all of the, all the doctrine in that psalm? What I'd like you to gather most out of this today is that when Haman and the choir were singing, it wasn't merely to provide the audience a good tune. You with me? It was by no means to become an act or a performance before people. Worship music is never to be reckoned as entertainment. What the Levites were doing was teaching Israel through the channel of song. And as the Israelites grew in that knowledge, God was increasingly worshipped and glorified for who He truly is. Music can be called worship only as far as it increases our relationship to God through understanding, knowing Him. Um, It's not to become an empty emotional experience, void of knowledge. It's not to become mindless, vain repetition. Singing is a conduit of transferring doctrine so that those being led in the song can come to know God which will consequently stir their emotions. Haman, excuse me, Haman the singer, he was a bona fide teacher of Israel, folks. He was a real He-Man. And I, and I ask myself today, why, why aren't more men drawn to that? You know, I, I think it's partially because of the age that we live in and and uh, the idea about music and singing and entertainment. and It's almost exclusively entertainment today, uh, the singing that we hear and see on television. And I think some Christian men have mistakenly concluded that practicing instruments or singing in the choir isn't real manly. And they wrongly conclude that choirs may be for men who can't do any heavy lifting. Folks, choir is the heavy lifting. And and I believe our own worship leader and the men who accompany have proven those notions untrue. Singers and players of instruments are the real he-men in our congregation. They're tough. They're rugged. Gerald even wins a football game now and then. 
And we need to finally recognize, folks, that biblically, the participating in worship, whether that's playing instruments or, or, or participating in a choir or singing in the congregation or, or even going door-to-door caroling, they're very godly activities because when we are doing so, we are teaching others about Christ. Through the words that we sing, that's the function of Christian music, folks. It's not designed, not supposed to be designed that we all get warm fuzzies. That's not the design purpose of music. That's why Colossians 3 verse 16 tells us this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Notice that, the word of Christ. That's God's word. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the purpose. Teaching and admonishing through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've properly learned that being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean experiencing warm fuzzies or tingles in your fingertips. Being filled with the Spirit means you are filled with the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, so that you respond properly in life to any and all circumstances. Being filled with the Word of God. Responding accordingly. And the purpose, uh, biblically, of music The purpose of worship music is to teach and admonish us with sound doctrine that arises from the words of Scripture. The the purpose today remains identical to that of ancient Israel so that the people of God will grow in the knowledge and understanding of their Creator and Redeemer. And in the fullest sense, I truly believe this, In the fullest sense, the leading of corporate worship, it's a teaching ministry of the church. It is a teaching ministry. As such, the position of worship leader requires a person that meets the biblical parameters, qualifications to teach the Word of God corporately. They have to possess the spiritual giftedness, the doctrinal discernment to know whether the hymn, the spiritual song whether or not they're biblically accurate. The leader has to be able to recognize when a song is is merely vain repetition or maybe void of doctrine or maybe contains contains errors in doctrine. There's been numerous times that Pastor Weiler has come to me uh, with a song. He said, you know, we, we just can't sing this. We can't sing it. The wording is not accurate. It does not accurately represent Christ or the Bible. Um... Or possibly it's either, uh, either that or just empty in content. For those reasons then, worship in a corporate environment, it's never to be led by a novice or inexperienced Christian. That role demands leadership. Also it doesn't automatically default to the person who has the most raw musical talent. No, no matter how skilled they are. Just because they can play the instrument doesn't mean that they can lead the company of Christ redeemed in worship. 
But the beauty of church worship is that when properly directed, everybody can and should be involved. Children's choir, it's a delight. When they get up here and sing, the lyrics are simple, right? Because they're learning. They're learning. That's what it's all about. The specials, whether instrumental or small group singing or any other type of music that we do, um, they're an inspiration to us all. The choir, no doubt, is a pleasure to the ears of God. And when we sing corporately, folks, when we sing together corporately, every single one of us is taking part in teaching our children the visitors who are present, and one another, how we enjoy the greatness of our God and what we think of Christ when we sing, what Christ means to us. I hope we will begin to understand how, just how important this is. I personally, I would sing much louder. I really would. I'm not making this up. If it weren't for, yeah, Gerald said, that's okay. <laughs> if I didn't have to speak at length, um... I probably would really get into it. I probably would. Maybe like Gerald's boys over here dancing in the front row. Um, I'd join choir if I didn't have to speak immediately after they normally sing. I really would. Um, And anybody can sing, folks, in a group. Anybody can sing. Uh, Some people's voices were especially made for groups. Some for very large groups. And if you approach Gerald and say, I want to do a solo, and, and he responds by gently suggesting that you sound better in groups, you'll know what he's talking about. And we all realize there are certain people that are more skilled. More skilled at making a joyful noise than others. But at the same time, Scripture offers no excuse for not singing. You know, some pe- sometimes people just say, you know, I just don't feel like singing. I understand that. There are seasons you go through when the heart is broken. There are certain occasions when you're just not prepared to sing. There's a season of grieving. But difficult life circumstances don't provide a legitimate excuse to never sing. Just to illustrate that as we close, I'd like to turn one last time to our friend Haman the singer. Haman was not only a singer. God inspired him to write one psalm. That is Psalm 88, and you can either turn there or just listen briefly as I summarize. The Hebrew subtitle to Psalm 88 reads this, A Maskal, or Contemplative Song of Haman. And when you have time to reflectively read through it, the psalm, it's a lament. It's a lament over a perceived abandonment. And and although the psalm opens with Haman referring to the Lord uh, by name Yahweh and and calling Him the God of my salvation, the rest is a cry of supplication. Haman becomes very ill and near death, and he feels alone, he feels forsaken. Even his friends seem to have abandoned him. Almost a Job situation if you read it. And he even fears that God might be angry with him for some reason. Many of us have probably experienced similar feelings. And the psalm describes a very dark time in Haman's life. We're not told how old he is 
or what disease or what affliction draws him near to death. But what I would like to draw your attention to is the content of verse 13. Haman writes this, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Whatever his condition is, it appears as though it arises out of childhood. Maybe an accident, maybe a chronic illness from his birth. He says, I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. Haman lived his entire life with this grave affliction. It could have been a heart condition, severe scoliosis, other malady. We aren't told. Scripture doesn't tell us. In, in that regard, Scripture is very wise. You know, if it told us exactly what Haman was suffering from, we'd say, well, we don't suffer from that. We suffer from this. It doesn't apply to me. No, it applies to us. All of it. It's written so that anyone can associate regardless of the origin or type of infliction, affliction that they're enduring. And what we need to recognize is that Haman suffered this affliction early on, yet he didn't allow it to interfere with his obligation to worship God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was a Levite. His role was to assist the priests through leading worship at the temple. Surely there were a lot of Levites. And Haman could have used the existence of a lifelong affliction as an excuse to kind of hang out at the rear of the pack. Oh, it's just me, Haman. I can't do anything. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Haman didn't allow it, the malady, to come between himself and God. Instead, he became known as Haman the Singer. Haman the singer who led Israel in worship. He was personally selected to offer prayers of thanksgiving when the ark arrived in Jerusalem. Folks, that suggests that he maintained a pretty good attitude in Israel, right? If he's going to offer prayers of thanksgiving, even in the absence of a perfect life experience. He learned to play instruments to the glory of God. He taught others How to know God through the voice of his singing, he was Haman the singer. And the legacy of Haman endured for generations, folks. When the reforms under King Hezekiah occurred, and during that purifying and reconsecrating of the temple, do you know who were among the first Levites to be called? To cleanse the temple and restore worship. Folks, it was the sons of Haman. Hundreds of years later. Second Chronicles 29. About a hundred years after that, um, just after the idolatry of Manasseh, when King Josiah searched and found the book of the law, remember that? They had to search for it because somehow it had gotten lost. When Josiah searched and found the book of the law and restored worship in the temple, who do you think Josiah called upon to lead worship? 2 Chronicles 35.15 informs us of the singers. There stood the descendants 
of Haman. A resource I read concludes rightly this, that Haman's family should be so prominent on the occasion of the ark coming into Jerusalem during the rededication of the temple at the time of Hezekiah and then sang the reforms of Josiah is a good indication that they remained faithful to the Lord even during the periods of Israel's uh, terrible idolatry. And the legacy lives on through Scripture to this day. And it suggests that Haman and his family remained faithful. By the way, do you know what his name, Haman, means in Hebrew? Faithful. The singer who was faithful. And God was faithful to him. Scripture tells us, gave a bunch of names, and it says, All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God. For God gave fourteen sons and three daughters to Haman. All these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Isn't that something? First Chronicles chapter 25. Folks, I can't think of a better time for a man or a woman a son or a daughter, to begin singing like a real Haman than announcing to the world and to one another that a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And in that same region where Jesus was born, There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men. Gerald, do you have a song? 